Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, here we are in our maiden voyage of our podcast discussion of your maps. These, this is the weekly news email newsletter you send out. It's a very interesting. I feel like it, metaphors are so definitive for how we think, right? It's not literally a map. Like you're not sending out like like it's something that looks like a cartographic thing, literally. But it is a cartographic tool, right? You're trying to map out where things are going sociopolitically in light of technology and culture. So why did you choose the map metaphor for what you're doing? I, I mean, if if I could draw better, maybe it would be a literal map. <laughs> but drawing is not one of my skills, right? I, my, my, there are apps my, for that. <laughs> well, yeah, no, that, okay. Well, maybe I will look into that then. If I can just sort of speak the words aloud and the AI turns it into a picture for me, that might be, that might be interesting. Mm, I think, you know, to some extent, the map metaphor is... You know, I've, I've still got uh, Age of Discovery on my brain, you know, kind of that first book, the years I spent in, um, in you know, writing that and promoting it and all of that. And, you know, one of the one of the most powerful stories that I at least I found when I was sort of on stage or sitting with executives and, and, and talking about, you know, how do we make sense of the time we're in? How do we better make decisions and, and figure out what we need to change. Um, the The most powerful story that I tell is the Christopher Columbus story, right? Sort of, and, and what I find powerful about that, what I think people find powerful is the kind of the unexpected twist in it that, you know, Columbus set sail in search of Asia and he found America. That's what we remember him for, but we forget that he was, he was looking for Asia, and when he found America, he was convinced that he had found Asia. And and why was that? It's because uh, you know Noah had three sons, and after the flood, uh, they fathered the three races of humanity: Europe, Africa, and Asia. And I mean that was the sort of the map of the world from the Bible, and that was the map that was in Columbus's head. And because he couldn't see past that map, Columbus wasn't able to grasp the significance of his own discovery. It it, it took uh, Amerigo Vespucci 10 years later to, to come and sort of tear up that mental map and say, okay, the reason that we can't make sense of this is that it it isn't a place that was on that map. This is a, a mundus novus. This is a new world. And as soon as that mental shift happened in in the maps that Europeans had in their head, and they got past their disappointment that this place wasn't Asia and could get excited about, oh, this is a whole new place that we know nothing about. Then there was this sudden torrent of investment, of exploration that happened in, in what is now America. And, and so I think – And it opens take, up all sorts of other discoveries. I mean there's, there's a, also right, like just that horizon breaking. It, 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 there's all sorts of other discoveries in the period. Sometimes it's once one emotional – or one map – one sort of map gets replaced with a more expansive one. You start to think expansively on a whole other, uh, on a ran, uh, and an array of disciplines and, and realities, right? 
Yeah. And I think that, you know, when you sort of take this basic insight that you know, we we have mental maps as well and they help us to see things, but they also delete the things that don't fit on the map. Uh, I think that it helps us to look at all sorts of things that are just it, it helps us to think about living in a moment of rapid change. So much is happening in the world. So we would expect that our maps, which are meant to be like representations of the world, you know, become less and less valid the the faster things change, and you actually see this uh, this kind of narrative being uh, grasped, being groped at all over the place. Uh, I mean, take the biggest examples. Uh, you know, Amazon. You know, famously, Jeff Bezos his his uh, sort of mantra is every day at Amazon is day one, and and the the point there is like be careful about getting fixed in your habits, in your routines, in your way of thinking about this business. Because those, and this is now my word, like those maps then become an obstacle to rethinking the way things are. Um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, move fast and break things, right? All over the place, people are reaching for a kind of story that says we need to be, you know, like agile, disruptive, all of this stuff. It's It's partly about saying, let's Let's avoid getting sort of crystallized in our thinking about things. And for me, the language of maps is just a simpler and more intuitive way of expressing that same idea. Yeah, I think about Jonathan Haidt's work on moral psychology, and he always says that morality, it binds and it blinds. Like, like something you need is a tribal, as, 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 as human beings are evolving and you're trying to build communities, you need these sort of sense of values you know, so it binds you together, but also blinds because it's sort of, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's, I mean, I think what you're saying is something similar there, right? Like our maps bind us together. They allow us to have a shared concept of reality and, and to go back and forth, but they also can be blinding when we all sort of agree on something. And, and those sometimes those things are, this is like a, right, like a, uh, sort of Kuhn's, you know, the structure of scientific revolution, right? Like mm-hmm. the paradigm shift mm-hmm. things. And there's, it's hard to shift paradigms, but, you know, because you have so much invested always in the old paradigm. Right? It's just yeah, inevitable. That's right. that's right. That's right. And, you know, the only perfect map uh, is the one that covers the whole surface of the planet, right? As soon as we make it smaller than that, we're making choices about what we simplify away. And, you know, I think exactly like Thomas Kuhn talking about uh, the structure of, of scientific revolutions is is really about, you know, the slow process of gathering more and more doubts about what we've chosen to simplify away. And do we need to sort of pick up uh, those pieces we've deleted and, and rearrange them into a new sort of valid understanding of what we're looking at? Um, you know, it, it, it's kind of like, oh boy, now, now my mind is really roving. But think about the history of uh, astronomy, right? And not to get back into history, but, you know, people like, like Nicholas Copernicus, you know, with his whole, um, heliocentric model of, of, of the universe, you know, it's the sun, not the earth. It's the center of the universe. And, and, you know, really what he was arguing was that the system of, of astronomy that we had that put the earth at the center. And then, you know, Ptolemy had all these complicated, uh, celestial motions to explain how all the bodies got where they were at different times of the year. It worked, but only if you ignored sort of the 5% of the time that it didn't really work, that the predictions about where 
all the bodies in the heavens were going to be weren't quite right. And, and really it was his, his, his frustration with the imperfection of the model. You know, there's little bits of detail that we had chosen to delete that led him ultimately to overturn the whole model and say the only way to make the model more accurate is if we fundamentally rethink a couple of assumptions. Right. And, and then it became a little more accurate, but there were still some little things that didn't quite fit. And then it took, you know, it took people like Galileo, it took people like Kepler to figure out that, oh, okay, no, we, we can't think about these things as circles. We have to think about them as ellipses. Right. And then there were still a few little things that didn't fit. And it took until we had Einstein to say, oh, we have to think about the gravitational forces between these bodies as they go through the heavens. And when we figure all of that out, now we think our map, you know, we've continued to, 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 reduce the amount of information that we can't account for in our map. So I don't know why I went on that. No, that's interesting. (laughs) It's interesting, right? Because it's often, we're often slow to be irritated by the bits that don't fit. You kind of like rationalize, you just turn a blind eye to them. But then there's some people that obsess on the parts that don't fit and they, and they often become the revolutionaries. But what I, on this podcast, what we're going to do is talk about each week. You do a little map every week about where we're going in the world, uh, you know, through the lens of, of culture, technology, politics, socioeconomics. And this week is map 25, right? And map 25, oh God, it's been 25. Or, it's been 25. It's, it even says so. I know that because of my because attention to cartographic that. detail. It says in the email, <laughs> map number 25. <laughs> Has China too. got it all figured out? So I'm just going to, I'm just going to save our listeners the, I'm going to do a little bit of a suspense killer, a little bit of spoiler. No, they don't have it all figured out, right? <laughs> well, it depends who you ask. I don't think that. I mean, so you know, and I think that. So you know, we can take this where you want it to go. I mean, why I felt compelled to um, sort of focus Map Twenty Five on China is, you know, there's been this. There's been this uh, very simple story, a very simple narrative uh, banging around. Um, you know, really, I, I really think, you know, maybe since Trump was elected is when it really went into overdrive that, you know, we're all messed up. But look at China. It is ordered. It is organized. It is, uh, you know, resources and the national direction is aligned. And because of that alignment, it's achieving all sorts of economic progress technological progress now um you know the the party has figured out how to be uh like a well-oiled technocracy and because it is so good at governing nobody's interested in you know upsetting that system anymore in democracy or whatever it might be uh and really you know it presents this 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 deep doubt to the liberal democratic world, which is, could we ever be as uh, <laughs> as, as competent at, at governing ourselves as as they appear to be right now? And you know, so in my narrative of maps, what I think is that we have uh, a very over we have got like a dramatically oversimplified picture of China in our heads right now, almost like, like monochrome red, right? We're just wearing these rose colored glasses. And all we see actually is what the, the party, the communist party wants us to see. Yeah. And you've lived in China for a number of years in the, in previously, and you did your 
PhD work on Chinese politics. This is going to be a really silly question, but I'm just going to ask it anyway. I think the average Western <laughs> liberal, the average member of Western liberal society, I mean, people know that China, most people know anyway, that China is not a liberal democratic state, right? It wouldn't have the same sort of human rights kind of things or, or uh, you know, liberalism with a, with a, with a small L kind of, you know, certain inalienable rights of an individual that, you know, these sorts of things. But how does that, but also it's getting pretty good at capitalist market economics at the same time. You know, so, so, so how does that shape the average Chinese citizen? How different is life if you're an urban Chinese person that's, you know, in, in like not in one of the rural impoverished areas, but you're in a pretty developed area of China. How much different, how much freedom do you have on a daily basis relative to if you were in the UK or San Francisco or, you know, New York City or something? Hmm. You know, it, it's, it's a really interesting question because, you know, in, in one sense, you could almost say, you know, there's not much difference in your daily life. Uh, you know, I choose what I want to study. I, you know, I, I have my job, my career, I earn my money, I buy my property, I go out with my friends, I make my life choices, I bear the consequences of those choices. You know, eventually I'm on welfare and at some point I die. Right. And, and that story is probably. <laughs> I'm surprised that we ever wrote a folk song like that. I made my choices <laughs> and then I die. <laughs> yeah. So two things I can't do. I can't draw and, and I can't play an instrument. So that's why, again, if I could, I would express that in, you know, more eloquent musical form. It, the, where things go in dramatically different directions is when you have, when somehow your life comes in conflict and your goals come in conflict with authority, right? And I mean, you know, in the US and, you know, in Canada, in the UK, you know, we almost love it when we have a conflict with authority because we have a chance to sort of, you know, deploy our powers, right? I, I want due process. I'm going to sue you. I'm going to call your, uh, you know, call your supervisor. I'm going to lodge a complaint, report. I'm going to, you know, all this stuff. We've got so much uh, resources to assert our indignation, right? our sense of injustice, when the system uh, doesn't take our interests, uh, doesn't make them priority. Right? In, in, in China, you have none of that. Right? Uh, everything that you have can be sacrificed on the altar of uh, the, the priorities of the party state. And, you know, it, it, it begins at... Uh, like at a at a constitutional level, if you if you look at the constitution of the country, there are all sorts of a very familiar sounding language there about uh, uh, a freedom to uh, assemble and you know rights of political participation. It's all in there in the constitution. But if you if you read it carefully, there's this kind of catch all in the preamble that says uh, you know none of this shall uh, I forget the exact language, but basically disturb the um, the 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 order of the party state, right? So they put kind of a catch up there and say, whatever we want, we can reinterpret this to decide that your actions, your behavior, uh, have gotten in the way, are disruptive, are contrary to the national interest, and that gives us the entire power of the state apparatus to do whatever we want with you. 
Um, and that can be, you know, in, in high minded ways when somebody, uh, like a famous artist like Ai Weiwei, uh, comes out and tries to create broad awareness of, uh, you know, how many children were destroyed by shoddily constructed schoolhouses in the Sichuan earthquake in 2008. Uh, and it also just comes down to people's like personal lives. You know, this is our home. This is our village. And you're going to tear down the whole village to build, you know, a ski resort in time for the 2022 Winter Games in Beijing. And, you know, my my property is now worth a lot because it's going to be this ski resort. But I'm going to get inadequate compensation. I'm going to get relocated to somewhere else where I'm now going to have a much longer commute to get to work. And, you know, my whole life is disrupted. and, And my only option is to... And the Chinese expression is like eat bitterness. Right? My only option is to sort of suck it up. Welcome to the reality, the daily reality of being Chinese. It's interesting. I I, I referenced Jonathan Haidt's moral psychology stuff a couple minutes ago, but he he says that basically our moral taste bud receptors are um, care or compassion. Right. That's a, a kind of he th- thinks these things are kind of semi universal. Fairness. Right. Loyal in group loyalty. Kind of loyalty to the tribe. Loyalty. Uh, authority, respect for authority, and and sanctity. These are kind of purity things, things that we think, you know, and, and sanctity is probably the most, the thing that feels most pre-modern to us. But he says that, like, basically, liberals in in a modern society, like in a society like the, like the United States or the UK or Canada, liberals tend to care about, everybody cares about care, about compassion and fairness. They interpret it different ways, right? He says conservatives still have a place for, more of a place for loyalty in group, you know, authority and sanctity and in some of his studies he's like well basically liberals will care more about suffering people in different tribes or across the world than they will locally whereas conservatives have this strong sense of care but it tends to be very local but it sounds like what you're saying is the big taste bud in in chinese culture is authority and probably loyalty to so the sense of niche this sort of uh sense of whereas i think a Western liberal is very suspicious of authority, right? You have all these constitutional things to try to kind of rein it in, you know, even if it doesn't work all that well, at least we have it as an ideal. But that's just not an ideal, which, and then we, as we see, right, President, our President of the United States says, hey, President Xi, who's a very good friend. The greatest thing was when he was at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> You're good at that. And he was like, <laughs> I mean, as I gave the order for Syria, I was eating, we were eating the best, most beautiful piece of chocolate cake. You've ever seen, <laughs> and President G was enjoying it very much. I'm like, I'm like, you have to do a Mar-a-Lago plug while you're talking about the bombing of Syria. You have to say how Mar-a-Lago has the best. And President G knew it too, but you know, like this sense in which President G has been named, you know, it basically could be president for life now. They took term limits out. But I read this article mm-hmm. about that, and 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 that was only one thing, right? In the context of lots of other changes which were very efficiency oriented, like changing the environmental regulations because they felt like th- their regulations were too toothless and they're trying to actually get more efficient ecologically and, and, and structuring several of the sort of adding some new ministries and, ag- and agencies. And admin- it was like ministries or, and, and administrations or something. Where they were. So I, it's interesting because a lot of the goals in these constitutional revisions would be things that people in any Western free market democracy would care about right and yet it's through a more authoritarian lens and like you're saying is we've seen this with brexit and some of the rise of nationalism a kind of ugly kind of nationalism in europe in the united states 
all these things are making people cynical, right, about the Democratic, pro- the Democratic project. And, and people are like, well, China's, I mean, look how far they've come. That seems mm-hmm. to be working. And you're, but, mm-hmm. I mean, you're saying, right, it depends on the questions. I mean, you point out in your letter, it's like, look, you know, the party is efficient at certain things. But, you know, if you've got a hammer, right, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. And, and so the party success stories are also told through the lens of a certain party interest and agenda, right? And so I feel, I feel like what you're saying in the picture is that it's a very selective map. Yeah, select. Wow, there's okay. There's so much there to unpack. Uh, Do you want to talk about the chocolate cake? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I had forgotten entirely about that because you know, like you know, Trump in in an average presidency, there are maybe like four or five good stories, right? That like the stand-up comedian can do their anecdote, and you know, it's like uh, George Bush, right? Senior, not going to do it. I can right, be right, 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 right. Like, like you know, Dana Carvey made his whole career like that one thing. Whereas for Donald Trump, like you get four or five good things a week. I mean, no wonder that there is so much great comedy in in political satire today because there's just endless new material, right? What are you going to do next? I mean, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the press secretary, creates enough of that. I mean, Howard Stern the other day was talking about, <laughs> I need this woman. I would be president just to have this woman. Like, so, uh, hey, Howard Stern is the worst-looking president we've ever had. No, he's not. He's the best-looking president we ever had. And if you ask that question again, you're out of the press room. He's like, I need a spokesperson like this. <laughs> uh, it, but, you know, and so this is actually a fantastic moment to get curious about about other political systems, right, and, and not just China's. Because, you know, ultimately we learn so much, you know, by sort of stepping out of our own world view. Uh, we learn so much about what makes it ours, right? And and I think you're right to to kind of put a finger on authority as you know, what you saw, like kind of the what was it like? They've got a sweet tooth for it. And 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 in the China worldview, that's exactly right. I I would call it um, order. You know, one way to think about what China is as as a kind of like historical project is it really is saying let's take the value of order and see what happens when that becomes the overriding priority the overriding governing priority and and you know and like some good stuff happens and then some real bad shit happens is what we find and if we could you know and it's true that right now in in sort of you know liberal democracy there's a lot of disorder so there's probably some interesting learning to to do there i mean well you know and and if you're if I'm if I'm a member, if we had like a member of the Communist Party here in, in this in this virtual room with us, you know, his first quibble would be, well, OK, wait a minute. We're a democracy, too, by the way. Check the Constitution. Um, the only difference is that, you know, we had our election in 1949. It was called the revolution. And, uh, you know, and since then, since the people chose us to be in power of this country, we've now been working on our mandate to deliver utopia. Uh, you guys sort of revisit that mandate every four, every four or five years. You know, we do it every hundred or so, but it's still a popular mandate that the people have given us to figure out, okay, so how do we do this shit? And, and we think that by our standards, by the way, we've done a pretty good job of it. Now, you know, the critique, cause you say in the letter, I kind of like, I, because what worries me and the other thing I was sort of responding to in this week's letter is it is, it is very popular like in the Davos set right now to compliment the, the leadership uh, of, 
of like Xi Jinping, of China, of the party, in contrast to everything that's happening here? Because it seems it's very well run if, you know, for example, you're in business. But, uh, you know, the other thing that's happening there is it, it's easy, actually, to run a society when you simplify away so many conflicting sources of value and conflict. When you just say, look, we're just going to focus for the next 10 years on you know, top-line economic growth, any, any society can do that, right? The challenge is when it starts to conflict with, uh, you know, environment, clean air, clean water, with people's rights not to be, you know, displaced. So you can put a factory here with people's, uh, you know, property rights, with all sorts of things that, and and this is, you know, kind of the the, the perverse consequence of this focus on order, uh, which is like all sorts of things just isn't measured, right? And in the Chinese system, if it isn't measured. What gets measured gets done, and it gets done really well. And everything that doesn't get measured, you know, gets ignored at best, and and more likely gets sacrificed <laughs> in order to get the thing that that gets measured done. And and so that I think is that's the that's the lesson, right? That 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 China is is demonstrating is sort of both the both the power and the price of running a government very, very efficiently, which is, you know, what liberal democracy was never really uh, meant to be about, right? It's not about getting there fast. It's about getting there fairly. It's more, we're aiming at a far more complicated thing because we're always debating what is the thing we're aiming at. Yeah, right. And and that's, and, and part of that is even also regularly having a conversation about what the aims are. So it's a shared and, and so you, you, and part of the reason maybe our system seems like it's had better days is it, it requires a sort of engaged citizenry and an educated citizenry to participate and make the, and make the system thrive. And if you have a sort of disengaged, uneducated citizenry, the system it has a really deleterious effect on the system. Hey, this is something that I'm, I'm I'm thinking about a lot right now, which is is the problem that people are disengaged or is it something else? Cause you, know, so, you, know, you look at like Trump in Trump land, people are engaged, right? That was part of, uh, that is part of his powers. He brings people off the benches, right? And like now I want to be a part of this. I worry. And, and we talk about how, you know, politics today and social media and foreign interference and all this stuff is, is kind of um, breaking truth, right? And we live in sort of a post truth political moment. But but I'm actually worried that the, the the real cancer spreading through liberal democracy is that we've got too much truth and, and not enough doubt. Because the maybe, whole, maybe, you know... Maybe we have ed- engagement without education well, or, 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 or without cer- a certain kind of critical reflection. I mean, there's a kind of, there's kind of critical engagement and a kind of uncritical engagement. That, you know, and I don't, I completely agree and I myself, I haven't figured that one out yet. It, it does come back to the China story where, you know, this is one of the big critiques among Chinese thinkers about sort of what we do in the liberal democratic world is, you know, we had this idea that sort of the right of the individual to to speak, to vote, but somehow we've taken it to this extreme where I have a right to be uninformed, right? And, and I have a right to my own truth. And, and it, that, you know, it, 
to 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 a worldview that is obsessed with order that that values education uh, very highly uh the idea that you can have um input that you can have a voice but not know anything is is really really strange it's really really radical right and i mean and i guess the theory on our side of the table sort of in our liberal democratic worldview it is Okay, well, that's why it's not, you know, pure democracy, right? It's a liberal democracy. And the liberal side of it is we've got all these checks and balances. You know, there are a lot of things where it's not majority rule, yeah. but instead there are protections for yeah, minorities. Yeah, and the majority can get say, you know, we want to outlaw rights for these this group. And the Constitution says, no, you can't. There, there are certain things that can't be legislated. Like So, so you know, and, and no one's more surprised about this than I am, but, you know, uh, Donald Trump doesn't seem to remember his political science classes in first year university, probably because he doesn't. You know, but, or the, but, or the so seven, or seventh grade civics. <laughs> do you guys still do civics? I mean, I think that's one of the problems too. Like, who studies civics anymore? But, but right. I mean, for him, uh, this is a democracy, and for him, uh, you know, somewhere along the way, and he's he's maybe the, the clearest sort of manifestation of this is we've somehow gone from uh, an idea of liberal democracy to an idea of tyranny of the majority. Right? That's what he thinks that he has. You know, why should we, why is it that the Senate sometimes needs 60 votes? Like that makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. It should be 5149. Right? That's because the idea that the majority shouldn't just run the table with whatever it wants to do. He doesn't get that. But the reason for it is that because we've decided to be so radical about who has a say, everyone gets a say. Doesn't matter. There's there was no qualification other than age, right? And so I guess to protect against the the potential for bad ideas to rule, we we have set some checks and balances. But then there, you know, really, I'm not so sure if it's democracy that's in crisis these days or if it's sort of liberalism that yeah, is in crisis. Yeah, I mean, and this is what's interesting because there's so much, and I hope that all the listeners will read the newsletter, which we will link to in the show notes. But one of the things that I think that I, that towards the conclusion you said, you talk about how in chess, I like chess, I'm not great at it, but I do like it. I mean, there's this sort of basic theory of trade-off. Like, like if I move here, you know, I move my coin here. I foreclosed on these possibilities and opened up these possibilities. So, so every every move offers offers you know opens doors and closes them. And so, you sort of think that rather than say which you know which is the winning system right now, because you sort of bring in the Fukuyama question, the end of history. Now, history is opened back up again. Liberal democracy is not the only viable system right now. Although we might think it's the best system or the one we live in, but there it has trade offs. And so does China have some pretty big trade offs. So, and so that. You sort of encourage people to look at to map make on in this sense in terms of trade offs, like list the trade offs that you what will you live with what you what what possibilities do you want opened up and what doors do you want do you, are, are you willing to close? Uh, so maybe efficiency gets some efficiency gets sacrificed for certain kinds of freedoms or vice versa, right? Is that kind of yeah. like your kind of takeaway in the in the letter? I, I think so. And, you know, so because the letter was focused on China, I mean, the the point there on China is, you know, people who are fans of the order that we see in China today, you know, before you become a too big a fan, you know, make sure that you look at the trade-offs. 
And, you know, the, the party in Beijing isn't advertising the trade-offs and they control the media space. So you got to do some looking to find them. But, you know, from, you know, the stories people know, like the, you know, economic catastrophe, catastrophe, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, Tiananmen Square, all the way through today, there are these giant um, social, environmental, uh, often measured in human lives, trade-offs uh, that are being made. So, you know, we certainly, again, title of the of, of the map, you know, China has not got it all figured out. Uh, but obviously, neither have we. Um, and, and, you know, some people really feel like democracy today is in crisis, because, you know, for example, we elected a Donald Trump. And, you know, before we jump to that conclusion, we should also think about w- what is remarkable about that election, in, in part, is that it happened, and it happened peacefully. Right. The whole idea is not that we're always going to pick the best leader, but that we're always going to have a peaceful transition of power. And you know, if you think about the shift from Obama to Trump, right? It, it, that's about as as radical a flipping of who who's sort of running the show as as, as people people couldn't imagine it, and that's why nobody could imagine him winning. And yet in this country where, you know, sort of every third person has a gun, uh, not a single shot was fired over that transfer of power. And it's probably, well, who knows, but we'll see where China is at, you know, whenever Xi Jinping decides to step down or or passes away. But right now, my money would be on that that power transition is going to be far more chaotic and possibly violent, uh, even if the 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 actual policy and philosophical shift isn't nearly what we've just had in the United States in the shift from from Obama to to Trump. So so that is in a way democracy uh, at work, uh, and yet it is still a work in progress. And probably you know, my last point on that would be, you know, we went through as a society this thing called the Cold War. And this Cold War competition between sort of democracy and communism, it, it really sort of narrowed down our our creative thinking about our own system of it's government. It's bifurcated, right? Like the, the two the two, well, the two things that are competing for viable world well, systems are this and this. <laughs> yeah, and we couldn't dare critique it because we had to defend it and demonstrate why it was better, right? And then we won the Cold War. Right. So in a way that I think gave us a false sense of completion, we'd been trained to defend it and then we had proved victorious. So it must be the best system. And, you know, while, while we should hold on to that, I think we need to recognize that it's time to, to just sort of reopen our thinking about our own political system and, and to take, without being afraid of it, take inspiration from, get curious about. What is happening in China? What is happening in Africa? What is happening in Brazil? Because these are different, these are very different social experiments underway. And, you know, we are, we are trying to figure out the limits of what happens when you make freedom, kind of when your sweet tooth is freedom. And, and whole other societies are looking at what happens when we, when we put order first or where we put, you know, knowledge first or, 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 or we put hierarchy first, right? These are, these are, are are valuable inspirations, points of inspirations, maybe for us to look at. Well, what is the next step in the evolution of our political system going to be? And I think that's ultimately 
you know, the question we need to be asking ourselves, um, you know, as we, as we, as we try to navigate, uh, so much about the political world today that seems unfamiliar. And that is the raw material for many, many more maps to be written. Thanks for this maiden voyage. And we'll, uh, you know, look forward to future episodes. It's lots of fun. Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.